Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. everyone from the colorectal surgery team from the University of Montreal. Today, we're kicking off our first episode with a very important topic and even a challenging topic. In fact, it's in the management of rectal cancer associated with synchronous liver metastases. So, a few words on our team. We're a Canadian team. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Canada is just north of the U.S. for those that are not too familiar. And actually, we're located in the province of Quebec, and we're in the city of Montreal. And Montreal's a great city. The It's... most diverse and multicultural city we know. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of French culture. and uh, it's... It's, it's a great mix between North America and Europe. Exactly. So for those who are looking for a, a great experience, how about you come over here and visit us? Exactly. We'll be great hosts, we promise that. And we always have a lot of fun in Montreal. <laughs> and we hope that uh, you'll have fun listening to uh, our great case. And a special shout out to Leahy for their very instructive episode on the management of complex colorectal polyps. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and do so. Trust me, it's worth it. Okay, so first we're going to start by a short introduction of each member of our team. So we're three. There's a resident in surgery, Maher Alcaldi. There's a junior staff, Dr. François Dagbert. And then there's myself, the old surgeon, I guess, <laughs> Dr. Carol Richard. So I'm a PGY3 uh, resident in Gen Surg at University of Montreal. And I actually just completed my two years of master's. Uh, I was part of the clinician investigator program, and I have a great interest in colorectal surgery, hopefully aiming to uh, specialize in that field in the future. It's the best field. It is the best field. Oh, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> so I'm Dr. Dagbert. Uh, I'm the, an assistant professor in the surgery at the University of Montreal, and I've been working as a colorectal surgeon at the University of Montreal Hospital for five years. I completed my colorectal training at the Stroger Hospital of Cook County program in Chicago, and also uh, did a specialty training in peritoneal surface malignancy in Lyon, France. I specialize in robotic colorectal surgery as well as peritoneal surface malignancy treatment. I'm uh, Dr. Richard. I'm associate uh, professor uh, of surgery at the University of Montreal. I'm chief of colorectal uh, surgery service at the main university hospital. I'm chair of the oncology colorectal cancer team. I'm involved also in rectal cancer clinical trials and IBD. And also I'm involved in translational research, mostly related to microbiome. 
Okay, we're gonna start the case. Maya, you're called in by the emergency doc for a consultation for a 49-year-old female who doesn't seem to have a significant past uh, medical or surgical uh, history and is actually consulting for a lower GI bleed. How do you go about evaluating this patient? Well, obviously, there'll be a lot of things I would want to know. But first of all, I'd like to assess hemodynamic stability, make sure she's stable to know where we could place her. Okay, so all vital signs are strictly stable. Next, I'll question the patient. I'll get a better understanding of the story, see when it all started, if there's any associated weight and appetite loss. I'll make sure to check her list of meds, looking especially for anticoagulation. I'll also ask about family history of polyps or colorectal cancer. And although she doesn't have any past medical or surgical history, as you previously mentioned, I still double check and ask if she ever got a colonoscopy. So globally, I mean, she's a 49-year-old. Family history, naturally, you'd want to know, does she have any uh, cancer in the family? The history is negative, okay? As far as the rectal uh, bleeding goes, she started bleeding about two weeks ago. It's been going on and she's quite bothered by it because she never had any form of rectal bleeding ever. Keeping that in mind, I'd proceed with an abdominal and rectal exam. And I'd also ask the nurse if she could obtain a CBC and a chemistry profile just to get a better understanding of what's happening. So the patient actually looks fine. She has uh, no pain. The exam of the abdomen is strictly normal. Normal, and then you do a rectal exam and you feel a mass. All right. Um, well, I'd like to try to characterize the mass, um, see whether I could assess the distance between the mass and the anal margin. I'm wondering if there's any invasion of the sphincter complex or other adjacent organs. And finally, something we tend to forget if uh, the patient has a, an adequate rectal tone. Great. So she's got a circumferential mass at about five centimeters from anal margin. So that's quite low. It's slightly above the sphincter. How am I able to say that? How do you assess whether a mass is involved in the sphincter or not? Well, you could ask the patient to squeeze and see whether the mass is retracted Perfect. upwards. Excellent. Yeah. So then you do a rectal vaginal exam and you have the feeling that the posterior wall of the vagina is potentially involved. And on digital in this 49-year-old, uh, she has an excellent uh, rectal tone. So her CBC and chem profile are, are all fine. There's no uh, anemia and uh, she has no obstructive symptoms when you question her. You discharge her and make sure she gets a full workup as soon as possible for that mass. What would be like the initial part of your workup for this uh, rectal mass? Um, I would definitely get a full colonoscopy and CA level to get a baseline. So full colonoscopy exam reveals the presence of an ulcerated circumferential low rectal mass four centimeters from the anal margin measured on rigid proctoscopy. The lesion is biopsied, obviously. Uh, the rest of the colonoscopy was normal. There was no polyps or any sign of uh, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And pathology reveals an adenocarcinoma, wild-type RAS, with uh, microsatellite stability. Her C level is slightly elevated at 4.5. She is a non-smokers and all the other lab tests were normal. And I think it's worth mentioning that the CEA blood level may be increased in certain types of cancer. 
and non-cancerous conditions, including peptic ulcer disease, ulcerative colitis, rectal polyps, emphysema, benign breast disease, and many other inflammatory states, pancreatitis, cholecystitis, to name a few. Um, also, CEA can be expected to be raised in around 60% of cases of colorectal liver metastases, meaning there are 40% of cases where they could be normal. Good. So after the colonoscopy, uh, a CT scan uh, is ordered because of that cancerous lesion. Uh, the chest part of the CT is normal. And uh, on the abdomen and pelvic scan, you see the parietal thickening of the distal rectum, suspicious for neoplasia. There is uh, uh, also uh, at least one nodule next to the rectum of 17 millimeter in the mesorectal fat. Uh, they can't really say if uh, it's a local tumor expansion or a lymph node. There is no signs of bowel obstructions. And uh, the scan also revealed the presence of a single 1.7 centimeter liver mass in the segment 5. Okay, so for basic information, it's nearly 20% of rectal cancer cases that are diagnosed synchronously with metastatic disease, and most are liver metastases. And uh, given the presence of a rectal mass and a possible liver metastasis, I would ideally like to obtain abdominal and pelvic MRI to further characterize both lesions. So on the pelvic MRI, you see a lesion that occupies uh, almost 100% of the circumference of the rectum, which is thickened at 11 millimeters, with an inferior extension down to the anal rectal junction without invasion in the anal canal. Uh, there is also one suspicious lymph node of 14 millimeter in the mesorectum and another one of 6 millimeter. There is extension through the muscularis propria. The distance between the lesion and the mesorectal fascia is only 3 millimeter. The lesion is also very close to the levator ani complex without directly invading in it as well as the posterior vaginal wall, which is retracted toward the tumor. There's no signs of perforation, though. So, Maya, you see how much information is involved with uh, MRI evaluation. It's been clearly defined that MRI has been very well uh, standardized for rectal cancer. We believe that it's really a gold standard in evaluating advanced local rectal uh, cancer. At our institution, most rectal cancer will have an MRI. We basically go by uh, Gina Brown's evaluation for selecting patient for pre-op neoadjuvant treatment. Uh, there's also rectal ultrasound, and it's being used, I would say, more in the U.S. than in Canada. In Canada, usually we'll use it for early disease. So when you have a small lesion, you're uncertain whether it's T1 or T2, even early T3. We'll go on to do an rectal ultrasound. But as soon as it's more advanced disease, we go with the MRI. Dr. Dagbert Francois, my friend. You mentioned many elements with the MRI, and you mentioned that the distance between the lesion and the mesorectal fascia uh, is 3 millimeters. So, Maya, could you tell us if that's pertinent? Well, in this case, what Dr. Dagbert said, uh, he was referring to the circumferential resection margin, or what we call CRM. And for those out there, CRM is measured at the closest distance of the tumor to the mesorectal fascia. So, 
A clear CRM is greater than one millimeter from mesorectal fascia and levator muscles and not invading into the intersphincteric plane. An involved CRM is when the tumor is within one millimeter of the mesorectal fascia. And for lower third rectal tumors, an involved CRM is when the tumor is within one millimeter from levator muscle. And finally, for anal canal lesions, an involved CRM is when there is invasion into or beyond the intersphincteric plane. In other words, CRM is therefore a very important predictor uh, of positive margins when doing an oncologic protectomy, and it guides further neoadjuvant treatment. Definitely very important to look for the CRMs on the MRIs. So on top of the pelvic MRI, you also ordered a, a MRI of the liver, and it shows that the hepatic lesion is measured on MRI at 2.1 centimeters and is uh, slightly hyperintense in the T2 sequence with a uh, hypointensity in T1, which corresponds to uh, characteristics of hepatic metastases. And it therefore confirms the diagnostic. So, Dr. Richard, would you obtain a biopsy of that unique liver lesion? Dr. Dagbert, would you? <laughs> So usually, no, we don't really biopsy liver lesions. If we have two different imaging that go along with the diagnosis of metastases, usually we'll be satisfied with the concept. We'll go to a biopsy only if our radiologists think that it's undetermined, it's not typical, but routinely, uh, no. And also, I, I think it's important to mention that uh, there are false negative rates uh, that could vary according to tumor size and other factors. And from what I've read, it could be between 5 to 10%. So to summarize, this young patient has a clinically locally advanced T3N1BM1A distal rectal cancer with what seems to be a unique hepatic metastasis and a possible T4 tumor on the posterior vaginal wall. So some might wonder if there's any benefit of trying to do a curative intent treatment for metastatic rectal cancer. And definitely the answer is yes. There is a potential benefit with a median survival time of more than 40 months after complete resection of well-selected surgical candidates. And even the possibility of achieving long-term disease-free survival of more than five years in 15 to 20% of the patients some studies have reported five-year survivals of up to 40%. Obviously, uh, that literature is a little bit difficult to interpret due to wide variability in selection criteria and all the oncological treatments that are obviously progressing and are evolving with the discovery of new treatment. But uh, usually, we tend to say that if there is a potential complete resection of the hepatic metastasis, we will treat them with an aggressive approach with a goal to cure the patients. And as old as I am, I think that uh, we should all have that approach of initially, uh, we aim to cure and be aggressive with our different uh, modality treatments. So at this point, we must always try to classify the patient and the disease in terms of resectability or not. So in cases of hepatic metastases, uh, Maya, what would be your criteria for patient selection or a curative intent? Well, there are different factors uh, to consider. And uh, although a colorectal liver metastasis may be resectable, first of all, the perioperative risks may be prohibitive. There are, of course, patient factors, uh, especially uh, those with significant medical comorbidities, including advanced age, 
any cardiopulmonary issues, and if there's uh, significant underlying liver disease. Then there are anatomic factors that are also important. One has to know that there has been a change in conventional indications for hepatic resection in relation to number of lesions, tumor size, and margins. And nowadays, the most important factor is to achieve an R0 resection while maintaining a functional residual liver volume. But we still know that prognosis is affected by the number of metastases. I could also mention that we could use other diagnostic modalities to improve patient selection, such as uh, PET-CT. Yeah, PET-CT can be used in the selecting uh, optimal surgical candidates, but its role is uncertain. In fact, a Canadian study published in JAMA in 2014 demonstrated that among patients with potentially resectable hepatic metastases, the use of PET-CT compared to CT alone did not result in frequent change in surgical management. Uh, there's no long-term follow-up of these papers yet. We will put a link in the show notes down. And uh, we did a local evaluation for a two-year period, uh, all patients who had uh, locally advanced rectal uh, cancer we did PET scanning, and it's uh, in about uh, 12% of patients, although CT scan of the chest, abdominal, pelvis uh, showed no metastases, we picked up uh, in about 12% of patients uh, findings that did change management, but the number needed to treat was not sufficient. But we easily go to, P- to PET scan uh, if we feel that uh, we're unsure. Yeah, we also use PET scan a lot in patients with extensive uh, nodal disease, such as uh, suspicious lateral lymph nodes or retroperitoneal lymph nodes, to make sure that there's no extensive nodal disease outside the abdominal cavity, which would preclude a curative approach. And Dr. Dagbert, I was wondering, do you use diagnostic laparoscopy as part of your workup? I would say that nowadays, diagnostic laparoscopy is not needed for evaluating patients with colorectal liver mats. However, it could be used if there's a suspicion of small volume carcinomatosis on imaging, uh, such as the presence of uh, ascites or uh, peritoneal nodules, because obviously uh, peritoneal carcinomatosis would change the prognosis and the treatment plan in these patients, with most of these patients being only candidates for palliative chemotherapy. Even though cytal reduction might be considered in patients with very limited disease combined with few liver meds, uh, it's I, rarely used in this. Yeah, in these I cases. think we don't want to get on that subject. Because <laughs> that's a whole topic on exactly. itself. Exactly, yeah. All right, so all patients with potentially resectable metastatic colorectal cancer should undergo an evaluation by a multidisciplinary team including a surgical consultation with an experienced hepatic surgeon to assess resectability status, as well as an experienced colorectal surgeon for choosing the optimal treatment plan. And in that multidisciplinary team, of course, there are all the radiologic assessment, uh, the chemotherapy oncology team is there, the radio-oncology uh, team is there. And it's quite important to uh, nowadays in 2021 to get patient assess uh, with uh, this team. It is particularly true with rectal cancer since there are multiple neoadjuvant treatment options 
and timing between primary and metastatic treatment is important to limit the morbidity and limit oncologic failures while the patient is on neoadjuvant treatment. So in this case, the final decision was to begin with systemic chemotherapy followed by a long-course chemoradiation therapy of 50.4 gray, followed by the hepatectomy in the interval and then the proctectomy. The patient first underwent the four cycles of Folfox as the neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Just a tiny reminder for our listeners out there, Folfox is made up of the drugs folinic acid, leucovorin, fol, and then you have uh, 5-FU, the F part of the word, and then oxaliplatin or eloxetin. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Okay, a little question here, guys. How about if the tumor was uh, MSI high? Would we have planned something different? Why am I asking that question? Patients with tumors with high uh, microsatellite instability or a mismatch repair deficient tumors or DMMR can benefit from immunotherapy. So the frequency of MSIH varies across tumor types and stages and approximately 5% of patients with uh, metastatic colorectal cancer have MSIH or DMMR tumors. We could have considered immunotherapy such as Pembro or Nevo plus or minus ipilimumab if the tumor was DMMR. MSIH. Great answer. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so after chemo, one must assess tumor response. In our patient, a repeat abdominal pelvic MRI was done and uh, revealed a decrease in the hepatic lesion. However, a rectal tumor did not show much response. Is this frequent? Why? Why would the rectal cancer not respond and the hepatic lesion respond? What's going on? It's an excellent question. <laughs> okay, so usually, I mean, 80% of the time, okay, based on a Sloan-Kettering study, 80% of the time, the rectal cancer will decrease. But there are 20% of cases where with chemotherapy, the rectal cancer will not respond. So here, I mean, we had uh, locally very advanced disease, so we would have really uh, liked to have a downstaging on the rectum. And in fact, the liver was not such an issue. But that's why we went with uh, a long-course chemoradiotherapy to increase the primary tumor response, especially in the case here where we have like a fairly locally advanced tumor and a probable T4 on the posterior wall of the vagina. So the patient underwent her chemoradiotherapy with Xaloda and the radiotherapy of 50.4 gray in 28 fractions. And just to remind everyone, because I like to remind clearly everyone, our listeners, <laughs> Xaloda is a prodrug that can be taken orally and is selectively tumor activated to its cytotoxic agent, which is fluorouracil. So we can say that uh, 
My ad is really up to date on you. Well, I try to be. I try to be. It's good. It's good. It's good. Proud of you, Maya. Thank you. Okay, so we chose long course chemo rad therapy. How often, uh, Dagbert, would you go with a short course? Well, in this patient with a possible threatened margin on the levator NI and the posterior wall of the vagina, we definitely want to optimize tumor response to limit the risk of a positive margin and to lower the risk of having to do a vaginal resection. We want to maximize our chance of a sphincter sparing surgery. In this case, short course radiotherapy would not have been a very good option, even though it can sometimes allow for a shorter duration of having suboptimal systemic treatment for the liver mats. In a patient who does not have a threatened radial margin, we could use a Rapido trial protocol, which is fairly new, but is now a demonstrated valid neoadjuvant treatment approach, which consists of a short course radiotherapy followed by uh, systemic uh, full Fox chemotherapy. But in this case, we decided to begin with the chemo first and then to go with the long course to optimize really the, the tumor response and to maximize our chance of having a negative margin on primary resection. And in this case, we decided to go with the epitectomy in the interval between the end of the radiation therapy and the proctectomy, which would normally be between 6 to 11 weeks. And by doing the hepatectomy a few weeks after the radiation therapy, we were able to optimize the treatment sequence and to minimize the risk of metastatic progression as well as primary tumor progression. This really demonstrates all the complexities associated with uh, preoperative management of these types of patients and why a multidisciplinary approach is important because nowadays we, we really go by what we say in French à la carte, which means it's it's not a standardized protocol. I mean, it's a it's a highly individualized treatment. Exactly. In French, we say traitement à la carte. Exactement. So the treatment was done as planned. So after four weeks of chemo rad uh, finished, the patient went on for a partial hepatectomy, removal of segment five by laparoscopy. And on the pathology, the metastases, his size was 1.2 centimeters and path report showed negative margin with good tumor response to therapy. Fortunately, her post-op course was uneventful. Here you can see that the laparoscopic approach, even for complex cases as a pathectomy, really helped the patient recover quickly and allowed us to plan the LAR with a short interval between the two surgeries, as the intra-abdominal adhesions were minimal. So this is another great example of how MIS benefits many patients. The patient after epitectomy was reassessed by uh, the colorectal surgeon, who was Dr. Dagbao. And by that time, the patient has ceased to have a rectal bleeding. And on digital rectal exam, there was a small decrease, not significant, but small decrease of the lesion. It was a bit more mobile, uh, still mostly anterior, but uh, the posterior wall of the vagina did not seem to be involved anymore. And again, the sphincter complex was not involved. Six weeks after the epithectomy, the patient was brought by Dr. Dagbar. And what did you do, Dr. Dagbar? 
Well, in this case, we decided to go with a TATME approach that enabled us to do a laparoscopic proctectomy and then a transanal extraction of the specimen. And for this young lady with fairly long sigmoid colon, we decided to create a 5-centimeter colonic J-pouch, and we did a manual coloanal anastomosis and a diverting loop ileostomy. Was there any uh, difficulty with the posterior wall of the vagina? The posterior wall of the vagina was fairly close. There was a bit of bleeding because uh, we had to go in the plane that was very close to the posterior wall of the vagina, but it was not... Uh, it was clearly not involved with cancer. It was clearly not invading in the vagina, so we were able to avoid doing some resection. The advantage of the TATME approach in this case was to enable us to dissect the plane between the rectum and the vagina lower than the tumor to make sure that there was a good plane there to avoid uh, any uh, uh, damage to the vagina. Great job. So, Matt, what are you concerned about with the PATH report? Well, obviously, I would want to know a little bit more about the size of the lesion, not just based on an imagery its response to neoadjuvant therapy, whether there is lymphovascular or perineural invasion, and whether there's invasion of adjacent mesorectum and its fascia. Obviously, if there are any positive nodes, and if total mesorectal excision was adequate, obviously this has to be um, assessed in the operating room also. And if margins were adequate, meaning proximally, distally, and radially. Yeah, here definitely are concerns with, with the radial margin. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, it was negative, and we had a 2-millimeter radial margin on pathology report with a 1-centimeter distal margin. There was no lymph nodes out of 20 examined that was involved, and the, there was a partial response to neoadjuvant treatment. The mesorectal excision was complete, and our uh, final pathology stage was YP3N0, M1. The patient stayed in the hospital for five days and had no immediate post-operative complication. I forgot to mention that uh, evaluating for RAS or BRF mutations could be helpful. In fact, patients that have RAS or BRF mutated tumors are at uh, risk of worse outcomes after surgery. So RAS stands for rat sarcoma. Okay, so, so wait a minute. Here's another reminder by Maya. Listen well. Okay, so... Um, Rat sarcoma viral oncogene homolog, or RAS, and BRAF murin sarcoma viral oncogene homolog B1, or BRAF, they're members of the same signaling pathway, that is the RAS-RAF mitogen-activated protein kinase, MAPK, in colorectal cancer. And by the way, I mentioned this because of my uh, background in basic science. <laughs> the presence of activating mutations in RAS and BRAF are associated with poor prognosis and have been identified as predictors of resistance to anti-EGFR monoclonal antibodies such as cetuximab or panitumumab in metastatic colorectal cancer. And findings from large randomized controlled trials have recently confirmed the survival benefits from the addition of anti-EGFR for monoclonal antibodies to standard combination chemotherapy in RAS and BRAF wild type metastatic colorectal tumors. So hope everybody got that. <laughs> um, Francois, did you do a protecting ileostomy? Yes, definitely. In a patient with a, a neoadjuvant radiotherapy with a low coloanal anastomosis, we would uh, definitely did not want to have any uh, major issues with leak. 
this patient is at high risk of an asthmatic leak, up to 20% in uh, randomized studies. So we would definitely uh, perform a diverting ileostomy. Francois, you did a protecting ileostomy, and the reason is uh, we know that uh, a low uh, coloanal anastomosis uh, can have leaks, and these leaks can be quite... Uh, Problematic. Exactly, in terms of uh, future functional outcome. Uh, she was discharged quite early, five days, and sometimes, you know, they can come back at uh, seven, ten days with a delayed leak. What's your usual approach in terms of follow-up? Well, we see those patients in the clinic usually between two to four weeks, uh, depending on how far from the hospital they live. Uh, we are going to assess how they're doing with the ileostomy. In that case, she had no hypoileostomy. She was, however, complaining of rectal discharge, which is uh, a little bit concerning for a leak, even with the protective ileostomy. So we typically perform a digital rectal exam. Uh, and here we could feel that there was a partial anterior anastomotic dehiscence with a, a slight anastomotic stenosis. We then obtained a water-soluble contrast study through the ileostomy, and we could see that there was a small 20 by 4 millimeter collection with a little fissionless tract. So Maya, how would you manage this patient at this point? That's a tough question for you. Well, I guess, is the patient septic? The patient is not septic. Okay, well, since she's not septic and already has a diverting ileostomy, I would manage her um, expectantly with close follow-up. I would also perform an endoscopic exam to better assess the extent of the dehiscence and the stenosis. Indeed. The patient did undergo colonoscopy, which revealed an anterior dehiscence, about 25% of the uh, anastomosis, with a moderate anastomotic stenosis that was easily dilated. She eventually completed three cycles of Xilox post-op. She did not tolerate the fourth cycle due to neuropathy, and the chemo was then stopped. After her adjuvant chemotherapy, subsequent digital rectal exam revealed uh, more than 95% anastomotic closure. And on follow-up colonoscopy, there was no more dehiscence or stenosis perceived. The patient then underwent an ileostomy closure 11 months after her rectal surgery with a good functional outcome. She has only a mild LAR syndrome with a very good quality of life. And three years after surgery, follow-up scans are normal, CE levels are stable and low, and there's no signs of recurrence. Okay, so in a patient like this, naturally it's quite important to do follow-ups and uh, different societies have guidelines concerning follow-ups. In this patient, it would be certainly a three, every three-month visit and with a rectal cancer, it's quite important to do a rectal exam every time because sometimes we can find local recurrence just on the finger. Also, uh, every visit is associated with a CEA assessment and usually it's just yearly scans, but probably in a patient with a stage 4 disease, we would go uh, and do a six-month uh, scan uh, because this patient is more at risk of recurrence as she was initially a stage 4. What about uh, colonoscopy? Full colonoscopy in this patient would be done a year after, but we don't hesitate to do proctoscopy, but in this case, probably not because it's really a colloanal anastomosis. But say if you have a rectal cancer and the anastomosis is at uh, 6 or 5, sometimes we'll do a short scope to assess the anastomosis also. 
And if if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, um, what you've said is mostly based on follow up for stage two and three colorectal exactly. cancer. And I think there is no data to guide recommendations for surveillance in patients with resected metastatic colorectal cancer. So the post-treatment surveillance strategy of, for this group of patients should be individualized. However, we're still aiming cure. Absolutely. So we're pretty well regular on our visits and our, and our scans assessment. Yeah, exactly. Especially since even with the recurrent metastatic disease, some patients are amenable to potentially second curative metastasectomy with five-year survival rates of about 40% in patients who have isolated local recurrence if delivered that are amenable to resection. So these patients clearly benefit from a regular surveillance. And uh, we must keep in mind that surveillance is performed to diagnose disease recurrence to treat it early. But post-treatment surveillance is warranted only if the patient would be considered candidate for uh, further treatment, such as second potentially curative surgical procedure like Dr. Dagbert mentioned. Right. But also remember that even with unresectable disease now, with all the options of the different chemotherapies, we've really increased survival even in non-resected patients. Uh, Dr. Richard, should the patient get an MRI in addition to the TAP scan? Uh, MRI of what? Liver or rectum? Well, I guess the liver. Well, I'm a colorectal surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) No, usually we'll not uh, proceed with follow-up MRI either of uh, the liver or the rectum. If the scan shows something that suggests possibly something, then we'll go on to MRI. I mean, here in Canada, uh, we're a public health system, and so therefore, uh, we do have concerns about... Limited budget. Exactly. Okay, Uh, could we have proceeded with uh, hepatic resection prior to chemotherapy in this case, liver-first approach? In this case, um, the patient had synchronous rectal cancer and liver metastasis, which usually warrants an initial course of systemic chemotherapy because it is considered a worse prognostic factor and systemic treatment allows for better patient selection as you would want to avoid a major liver surgery in patients with extrahepatic progression under chemotherapy. At some centers, if the hepatic metastases are resectable, upfront surgical resection rather than initial chemotherapy therapy may be offered if the patient is medically fit uh, and if the patient has several metastases or metastases in an anatomically less favorable region then one might start with chemotherapy to allow significantly less complex resection further down the line and the nccn guidelines state that initial resection is preferred over neoadjuvant therapy for most patients with initially resectable disease but that is not necessarily the experience at Uh, institutions. Yeah, I think in 2021, generally pre-op chemotherapy in patients with liver meds is offered, and there are different benefits. It gives systemic treatment of all disease. It uh, permits, like you say, uh, patient selection, because we know that 80% will respond, but a few patients, unfortunately, will get chemo and will progress. And these few patients, if uh, by starting by chemo, will be able to change chemo and prognosis is bad and therefore surgery will not be beneficial. So some could wonder whether simultaneous leak resection could have been performed in this case. Delayed hepatic resection until a combined case can be carried out could have worsened chemotherapy-induced liver change or increased the risk of post-op liver failure. 
So a combined approach with a liver resection and a rectal resection would also increase the operative time and potentially post-op complication, especially in lower rectal cancer. It was actually considered in this case since the liver resection was fairly straightforward, but because the rectal surgery was expected to be complex due to the extent of the primary tumor, we elected to go with a stage resection. So, Maher, if you were to resect simultaneously, would you start with the liver or the rectum? Hopefully, uh, I'll be there one day. But uh, mm -hmm. for now, I could say that there isn't any clear data on that. Uh, but I believe the liver resection could typically be performed first. If at some point the hepatic resection is not as straightforward as planned, either due to extensive resection, significant bleeding, or if the patient is just not tolerating surgery, then the rectal portion could be postponed. Continuing the procedure in a case where um, things are not going as planned could be harmful. And not only could this be dangerous for the patient in general, but also for, for the liver remnant as it may not withstand more blood loss. And if a prolonged Pringle maneuver is required, it might create a venous congestion in the splanchnic system that results in bowel edema and I guess it might compromise our colorectal anastomosis. So you better know before you do the resection. Exactly. Is there any literature comparing simultaneous versus staged resection? Yeah, actually several studies have investigated the length of stay and perioperative mortality between both approach. However, all those studies were retrospective and therefore there was a big selection bias. Patients who underwent simultaneous resection had higher number of right-sided colon primaries, smaller and fewer colorectal liver mats, and less extensive liver resection. More recent study when a major epithectomy was performed uh, at the same time as the colorectal resection, there was a higher morbidity and mortality than a stage resection. And still again, we're at traitement à la carte, individualized disease. I think that there are many factors associated with uh, doing simultaneous uh, versus stage. And uh, patient overall uh, health state is, is very important. In which scenario it's generally done, Maya? Um, patients with uh, colorectal primary lesion in a favorable location and limited liver metastases may undergo simultaneous resection. So, for example, a patient with a rectosigmoid or upper rectal lesion and a simple hepatic uh, resection and a favorable anatomy might be a good candidate. You also need to consider uh, the surgical approach for combined procedures as a large right upper quadrant subcostal incision is clearly not ideal for a protectomy. So, in these cases, we prefer if hepatectomy can be performed with a minimally invasive approach, such as laparoscopically or robotically. Now, how about if the patient arrives with a rectal lesion and the lesion is uh, obstructed or even uh -oh, perforated? Would this change the approach? Yeah, well, the patient should undergo evaluation and treatment of the rectal primary tumor first. Um, utilizing the liver-first approach increases the risk of developing complications related to the primary cancer. The treatment uh, will depend on the presentation and location of the tumor. A small upper rectal lesion might be resected up front, but for most advanced rectal tumors, we will want to give some sort of neoadjuvant treatment. And if bleeding is a concern, radiation therapy can also be used for hemostatic purposes before other systemic treatments are initiated. 
What would you do if the rectal cancer is obstructed? I would consider a diverting colostomy. If the tumor is colonic, I would also consider stent placement, although stents are associated with relatively high rates of complications, such as stent migration or even perforation. So I wouldn't necessarily opt for that option. Definitely. And colonic stents are poorly tolerated in case of mid to low rectal cancer. Also, it can lead to perforation in patients with potentially curative disease. So you better go with a, a diverting stoma in case where you need a neoadjuvant treatment. If the patient has unresectable synchronous liver metastases, then you could always go ahead with very aggressive neoadjuvant systemic treatment to allow for a resection if the patient is really fit. But unfortunately, most of these patients will never be amenable to a resection and they will end up on palliative chemotherapy. Okay, wow. That's a very exhaustive talk about uh, management of rectal cancer with uh, synchronous uh, liver met. And uh, I guess our time is over. Guys, it's time for us to wrap up. I think uh, we need to sum up and have a little take-home message. How about uh, our junior staff doctor, Doug Bao? So it's important to remember that the surgical approach to synchronous liver metastases from rectal cancer is complex. The vast majority of these patients will require neoadjuvant therapies, and the decision between the different treatment modalities will be heavily dependent on the extent of the primary tumor as well as the metastatic burden on the liver. There is always a consideration for optimizing local regional treatment, with or without radiation therapy, without holding systemic treatment for an extended period of time. Once they get to surgery, patients have the option of undergoing simultaneous resection of the primary tumor and the metastases, or a stage resection. The stage resection can either start with the colorectal lesion or the hepatic metastases, depending on the extent of disease. Systematic reviews and meta-analysis showed no difference in outcomes, regardless of which approach is taken. The decisions to perform a stage or combined resection and whether to do the colorectal first approach or the liver first approach should be individualized to each patient. MDT discussions are crucial and initial involvement of an experienced colorectal and hepatic surgeon as well as the medical and radiation oncologist will certainly be of benefit for the outcome of the patient. Yeah, uh, he, he pretty much summed it very well. <laughs> Um, well, in brief, patients with a colorectal lesion with synchronous colorectal liver med could be separated uh, into uh, several groups according to two elements. So first, whether it, we're talking about an early or an advanced primary tumor. And then second, looking at resectability of hepatic metastases. And based on that, one can tailor treatment to the individual patient. Okay, so all of you, I hope you enjoyed our first episode And I hope you look forward to our second episode. Thanks a lot for listening. And if ever you have any questions, suggestions, comments, if you don't like the tone of our voice or something like that, just feel free to call us. We'll try to modify a few things. Until next time, à la prochaine! Until next time, dominate the day. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. 
Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.